As we come now before the very Word of God, uh, if you'd like to read with me, please turn in your Bibles to the book of James in chapter 1. This is no surprise to us by now. You know where to go. Uh, James chapter 1. And before we read here, would you please, please pray with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, you tell us that if we ask, it will be given. If we seek, we will find that, that we're to knock and it will be opened So, Lord, as we come now to the very door of your word, would you open these things to us? Give us eyes here to see your face and that our faith would be strengthened. Guide us, we pray, by your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to focus here on just a couple of verses, but I'll read up until them. So I'll I'll read here just these first eight verses of James chapter 1. So this is James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of God. Now, this part of the text in this letter from James takes a look at the issue of doubt. So that will be our focus today, to take a look at doubt, specifically how the Lord would anchor us in such a way that we would not be like a wave uh, of the sea and driven and tossed about by the wind. Uh, So before we get to that moment, let's remember first what we're reading here. James, the author, has written a letter that's being circulated amongst myriads of dispersed Christians all over the place. And, and these Christians are in the midst of a particular hardship, and in, in, in all of their various trials, James begins by telling them, count it all joy. And as strange as that may sound, you can go back and listen if you missed our discussion about that. Uh, Last week, you could go back and listen to that. But when James says, uh, count it all joy, he's not being glib here or just dismissing or undermining their hardship. He's actually looking at the context of all that's going on around their hardship. That he's giving them perspective to see the bigger picture of all that the Lord's doing, that specifically through their trials... The Lord is making them steadfast. Through their trials, the Lord is making them complete and not lacking in anything. And boy, don't I want to become like that. Jesus, would you work that in us? 
So that's where James begins. There are lots of things then that we know that Jesus has already done in us. That in a life of, the, of a Christian, that Jesus' work in us is completed in some ways. That for, for the Christian, for the ones who trust in Jesus, Jesus has already made us born again in the Spirit. Not partway born again, already done. That Jesus in the Christian has already adopted us into his family. That we are now children of God. That Jesus has already cleansed us of all of the guilt of all of our sin. Nothing is outside of that. Nothing is to come from that. All the guilt is already laid to rest in all of these things. We are not lacking ever. There are many things that Jesus has already finished in us. We take comfort in that. And yet at the same time, there are aspects of our faith that are still ahead of us, that are still in front of us, that are still works in progress. So in some ways, we are still lacking. James here is addressing a particular way in which we might be lacking, that we would be lacking in wisdom. That's how he begins this paragraph in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. Now, when he says here, if any of you lacks wisdom, that does not mean that James is only talking to a select few. You know, that he, he, he's singling out just the, the couple of blockheads that can't get it through their skull. You know, like, if any of you lacks wisdom, <clears throat> Joe. Oh, for a second, I had to think, is there Joe listening? No, not as far as I know. I'm not talking about any particular, you know, he's not singling out particular. If any of you lacks wisdom, Olivia, you know, I don't know, I could start just singling out names. Uh, no, just kidding, not about you. Uh, he's talking to all of us at the same time, that all of us at various times lack wisdom. So at any time when you lack wisdom, this is what I want you to do. We know this is true because even Solomon, whom the Lord made the most wise and discerning than any before or after him, even there were times when Solomon still lacked wisdom, needed growth in wisdom. He talks about it uh, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. There we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, where is it? Verse, did I write it down? Verse 23, there it is. Solomon says this, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that's madness. In other words, in times when Solomon lacked wisdom, then he set his heart to seek it out. That's similar to what James is, is telling us here, that anyone who lacks wisdom, whenever you lack wisdom, don't just assume that wisdom is going to descend upon you. We don't just assume that it's going to be downloaded from the cloud like an automatic software update in us. You know, click yes if you want to update no, nor is this something that will automatically grow on us like moss as we get old or as we have experiences. Wisdom is to be sought. 
like Solomon, that he turned his heart to search it out. Or in the words of James, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, this might seem like a no-brainer, you know, but often my brain is a no-brainer, and, and I forget to ask, you know? How many times have you felt the need for wisdom? You're facing a tough situation, and you know you don't know what to do, that you need wisdom, and you're, you're working through it, and then you realize at some point later, oh, I haven't even prayed, I haven't even asked God about this. I got so caught up in what was going on that I missed the most important thing here. We need to pray to the Lord to give us wisdom. As James will say later in chapter 2, you don't have because you don't ask. So ask. (laughs) Ask the Lord. It's not just one time, you know, we ask that the Lord would make us wise in general. There's some, uh, something to be said about that. But we're to ask for wisdom again and again in each situation and maybe even again and again in one situation as we continue to need wisdom in it. This is probably, by the way, my most frequent prayer for myself. Lord, give me wisdom for this, for this moment, for this time, for this thing. Would you give me wisdom? Now, All of this might seem, I don't know, straightforward enough. That seems fairly simple. Ask for wisdom. All right. But then James goes on to tell us that we are not to ask in just any old way. He says in the next verse, verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Let him ask in faith with no doubting that if we ask in faith, we'll receive what we've asked for, but if we doubt, we don't receive it. Easy, right? Simple, right? Seems clear enough. Hmm. But in practice, verses like these have often been unsettling, to me at least. You know, in some ways they remind me of, of the the part where Jesus uh, faces the fig tree and he curses it. Do you know the story there? Let me read a couple of verses. He curses this fig tree for not having any fruit on it, and it withers. This is uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse uh, 21. Jesus says this. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt... You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Whoa. Well, that just seems shocking. And words like this make me feel... Like, this big. (laughs) You know, if I had any faith at all, words like this, for me at least, tend to have the effect of shaking whatever existing faith that I have. It it, it ends up making me have more doubt, uh, not less. So how do we deal with something like this? It's been helpful for me 
over the years when facing verses and sections of the scripture like this to listen closely to what the scripture actually does and does not say about doubt. The scripture does not say that all doubting is bad. Doesn't say that. The scripture does not, does also not say that real Christians never doubt. Doesn't say that either. One of the biggest comforts to me in relation to doubts has been reading uh, the, the giants uh, of, of Christian history, the, the great ones, you know, whose writings have lasted throughout the centuries, real strong Christians, to hear how they've addressed their own doubt in their own lives and their own words. People like John Calvin, Augustine, Luther, Lewis, all of them talk about their doubts at various points. It's been helpful to me to hear. Charles Spurgeon, famous uh, 19th century, the prince of preachers, he's called, in England, he talks about his own doubt at, at various points. He even talked in one sermon about all Christians doubting. He said this, these are his words, not mine. He says, I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and then doubt his interest in Jesus. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it's quite time for us to doubt him. It's time for us to begin to say, poor soul, I'm afraid you're not on the road at all. For if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ more than you deserve that you would be so ashamed of yourself as even to say, it's too good to be true. In other words, if I can paraphrase what he's saying in the ending there, there are aspects of the gospel that if we really get it, it will make us feel the gap between ourselves and God. That if we really understand the work that Jesus has done, not just that Jesus is some sort of life coach that is teaching us how to live good lives, but that Jesus, in sheer grace, apart from anything, anything, anything that I have ever done, came to save wretched sinners like me and like you to bring us to God. That if we really, really get that, if we see it, then we can start to feel that the love of Christ is too good for me that the glory of God is too big for me, that the mercy of God is too much for me, and I can start to wonder if all of this can really be true at all. If you felt that, that's often a sign that you're really getting it, that you've tasted the good road, and seen it for all of its glory. If you've ever felt or thought these things, let me just assure you now, you are not alone. Especially among Christian circles. Anyone who is brave enough, bold enough, to really ponder and look at the depth of Christ that we see in the scriptures, these people are likely to experience doubt at some point. Now, Having said all of that, how does that fit then with what James says here? Because James seems to be telling us not to doubt. <laughs> 
James, in particular, in this section, is not talking about doubt in general. He's addressing doubt specifically in relation to our asking for wisdom. Verse 6, let him ask in faith, let him ask in faith without doubting. That there's to be no doubt in the midst of our asking God. So that's what's on the table here. So now I suppose it would be a good time for us to address what doubt actually is. Because there's a lot of confusion sometimes about what doubt is and what it does. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. If you fell asleep there, come back so you hear what I just said. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith or belief is unfaith, unbelief. So unbelief, unfaith, that's not what doubt is. So where does doubt fit in there? The key to understanding the nature of doubt here is in James' description of what this actually looks like when he talks about it, especially in verse, verse 8. He says, he's a double-minded man. Double-minded. That's the key, really, to understanding what doubt is and means, that this person is split or divided between two things. So if the opposite of faith or belief is unbelief, doubt then has a foot in both camps as a foot in both streams at the same time, and sometimes even gets stuck between belief and unbelief. And you can see how a person caught in that would eventually become unstable and tossed by the wind. So let me give you just a, a, a practical look at this. So let's say, let's say you're going camping, which... I don't know how much camping you, tent camping you do, at least these days. It hurts my back more than it used to, but let's say you are. And, and you go camping, and so you bring along with you two tents. You have two tents. It's been a while, so you take them both. And you might be undecided, be of two minds, about which tent you're going to use. So it might actually be fitting or appropriate to set up both tents. You might do this because you want to see the actual size of them to see if they're big enough to sleep you and whoever's with you. Uh, you might want to know if there's holes in the tent. You might check to see if you have all the poles to actually set it up. So it might be wise at some point to be of two minds. That might be right at least for a time, but eventually nighttime comes. And at that point, you must settle in one of them to sleep in. Only a fool would think that it was good or wise to try to sleep in both. You know, unzip both, both of the doors and, and stick your body through, through both of them. If you do that, you really end up in neither one. You can only remain of two minds for so long before it starts to cause you harm. Uh, the modern author Oz Guinness um, is sympathetic to the challenges of doubt. He wrote a whole book on it called God in the Dark, which I commend uh, to you. And in it, he, he discusses avoiding the opposite errors of either being too hard or too soft on doubt. 
that we, we don't want to be too hard on it so that we, that we avoid all the appropriate questions, good questions that might come, nor do we want to be too soft so that we endlessly feed our questions. At any rate, uh, he ends up saying this about doubt. He says, for the Christian, doubt is not the same as unbelief, but neither is it divorced from it. Doubt is not the same as unbelief, but neither is it divorced from it. Continued doubt loosens the believer's hold on the resources and privileges of faith and can be the prelude to the disasters of unbelief. So doubt is never treated as trivial. Those are sobering words, but good words, that doubt has one foot in the stream of unbelief, which means we don't need to panic about our doubt, panic when we experience doubt, but we also don't want to make friends with our doubt either especially when it comes to the things of God. If we do, it can begin to take root. It can begin to produce sin in us. It begin to lead us away from the Lord. You know, if faith says to God, I trust you, and unfaith or unbelief says to God, I don't trust you, doubt says, I don't know if I can trust you. And while that might be honest for a period of time, we want to be very careful about allowing ourselves to make camp there, to set up camp in the doubt of being of two minds. We can hear how very serious the Lord takes this. Nowhere, I think, uh, is, is it more dressed, uh, dressed as seriously as in the book of Revelation You can hear how Jesus addresses this. These are familiar words. You'll know them already. Revelation chapter uh, 13, he writes to the church there in verse 15. He says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Oh, To be a church that's neither hot nor cold, he actually says either of those would be better. Cold would be better than you are now. You're actually trying to be both, which means you end up just being lukewarm, tepid, and what good is that except to be spit out? That's frightening. I think it's supposed to be startling to us here. Fortunately, Jesus doesn't do this just to make us upset. He says these things. He doesn't stop at these words. He says them so that something would be done with these words. He says them as a rebuke to sting the people, to feel their doubt so that he would bring them back. In the next words, he tells, at least for this church, the the cause of their double-mindedness so that it can be addressed and dealt with. Verse 17, here's what he says next. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered, and I need nothing. I need nothing. I'm good to go. I lack nothing. 
I don't need a thing from God. I don't need God to increase my love. I don't need God to increase my humbleness. I don't need God to increase my holiness, my faith, my wisdom. I'm fine where I am, Lord. Thank you very much. You know, we might think, oh, I don't think that. But you know, that's often the reason why we don't pray. When we don't pray or when we forget to pray, it's often because we don't think to ask God because we think our own strength and resources are enough. We've become so self-reliant that we've become embarrassed to ask even our neighbor for a cup of sugar, much less to ask God for just a teaspoon of wisdom. And James does not want anything. I don't want anything to hinder us from asking God. So the first step in repairing that is repentance. Repentance, confession of what we lack. To say to God, I'm needy. I'm a needy man. I'm a needy woman. I'm a needy child. I need help. God, I lack wisdom for this. I also lack the faith to ask for wisdom. I also lack the eyes to see my lack of faith to ask for wisdom. I lack, I have need, and we don't just stop there. We don't want to just stop at admitting our need, actually go on to ask God, God, I lack, now would you supply my need? Would you give me the eyes to see, give me the heart to believe, give me a mind that is wise in your eyes? I'm asking, I'm asking you now, I'm coming with my need, would you please provide? And we know there's no formula for these things. There's not a set bunch of pretty words that you have to say to make this work. But if, but if you need help knowing where to begin, for me, the situations are particular, so they may change. But for me, there's a single sentence in Psalm 86 that I often return to that's helpful in this double-mindedness. It's just, unite my heart to fear your name. Or in some translations, Give me an undivided heart to fear your name. Lord, don't let me be divided. Don't let me be split and double-minded, camping in two tents at the same time. Keep me from being tossed about by the waves of the wind, but make me single-minded, singularly focused on you as my God. So maybe that's helpful to you. Maybe that uh, piece of prayer might be helpful. We can also pray some of the words of the hymns that we sing. We just sang in joyful, joyful, about doubt. Maybe you didn't notice it, but you'll notice it here. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. That's a prayer. We're speaking those words to God. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. But if you pray that to God, and please do, make sure, try, if you can remember it, to pray also the next line, because this is really the source of it. Drive the dark of of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness. Fill us with the light of day. 
And the reason why that's important is because then it draws us back to focus our attention on God. If we look at ourselves, we'll find ourselves draining from faith. But if we look to God, it will fill us up again because God is a giver. A giver of immortal gladness. This is who he is, or in the words of James, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. It is God's desire to give. It is his gladness to give if we ask in faith. So why would you let doubt stand in your way if you lack Go to God. Go to your Father in heaven who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Would you pray with me? Lord, you've told us to ask, so we ask now. Not waiting. Would you make us wise? We lack sufficient wisdom. Would you make us wise to see where we need you to increase our faith? Would you help us to see what's true when we face doubt so that we can move through it into wholehearted, single-minded belief? And Lord, most of all, would you strengthen our faith in you that we would trust you as a good giver? Thank you for being this sort of God. We do love and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.